This is Exploring Leaders, Episode 12, with Bob Johansson, Distinguished Fellow at the Institute of the Future in Silicon Valley, sharing insights from his research and latest book, The New Leadership Literacies, inspiring you to take leadership in the digital age. Do you wonder how trailblazing leaders sense at scale, involve to innovate, and align the actions in this increasingly digital world? Welcome to the Exploring Leaders podcast. The experienced team at Degotion interviews leaders from around the world for insights and inspiration on how to lead in the digital age. In this episode, Degotion chairman Lieselot Engstam, who is also an independent board director, business advisor, and startup coach, asks the questions. Our guest today is Bob Johansson from the Institute of the Future in Silicon Valley. Bob is a distinguished fellow, an experienced researcher, and foresight advisor to many large organizations. He's an author and co-author of 10 books. Bob predicts that the leadership will not only need to change from current hierarchical to decentralized, but also to distributed leadership practices. This episode focuses insights from Bob's latest book, The New Leadership Literacies, teaching you the five literacies of leadership you need to acquire to lead in the coming digital age. So warm welcome to Bob Johansson, Distinguished Fellow at Institute for the Future in Silicon Valley, a leader, researcher and advisor to many large organizations as Procter & Gamble, Walmart, McKinsey, as well as universities and public organizations. You're also an author and co-author of 10 books, I believe, and the latest, The New Leadership Literacies, which is published this autumn, 2017, is the one which we will discuss a bit more about today. Warm welcome, Bob. Glad to be with you. So we actually met in Palo Alto and we've been learning from you uh, and your leadership foresight. And at Degotion, we're also taking your insightful courses at Institute for the Future in Foresighting. So we, we thought we would start to get our listeners to learn a bit more about you and your background and what business accomplishments has taken you to where you are today. Wow, big question. When I was a graduate student, actually, before I did my PhD, I went to divinity school studying world religions. And I'm not an advocate of any brand of religion, but I'm fascinated by religious practices and the positive and negative impacts that religion and spirituality have. But I I was a research assistant when I was in graduate school for a conference on religion and the future. And that's what got me interested in this idea of being a futurist. And at that meeting, I um, was literally carrying the bags for the world's leading futurists at the time. And uh, that was a point where I said, I want to do that. And uh, five years later, I was doing that. And that's been my career path. So it was quite early in my life, my mid-20s, when I... um, realized that I wanted to be focused uh, 10 years ahead. You have truly made your career and made a lot of uh, learnings and shared your learnings very much. Can you share a bit also about Institute for the Future and what you're doing there? Sure. So we're an independent nonprofit 
research group. We were a spinoff of RAND Corporation and uh, SRI International in 1968. So next year is our 50th anniversary. So I think we're now the longest running futures think tank in the world and one of the few that has actually outlived its forecast. So we keep track and, uh, you know, we... Over the last 50 years, 60 to 80% of our forecasted futures have actually happened, although that's not the way we evaluate ourselves. The way uh, we evaluate ourselves is, does the foresight provoke an insight that leads to a better action? And some of the things in our forecast we hope don't happen. We hope we're smart enough to avoid them. So the real way to evaluate a futurist is, does the foresight provoke an insight that leads to action. So we're a think tank, an independent nonprofit in Silicon Valley, focused 10 years ahead and working with a wide range of organizations. So I thought we'd start with some of the the statements that you have had around um, the changes that is coming for leadership. And you said that current practices are mostly developed for centralized and hierarchical leadership. And that now, which will not only be moving into decentralized, but also distributed leadership. Can you explain what you see coming and what the challenges for leaders will be? This is a process, you know, one of our principles here at the Institute is almost nothing that happens is completely new. Almost everything that happens was tried and failed years before. So it typically takes uh, 50, 60 years for really big changes to become overnight successes. And this idea of moving from centralized to decentralized to distributed began in a practical way when the internet was born in 1968. It was publicly introduced in 1972. And that made it possible to move from centralized networks to what has come to be called packet switching where you send a message, it's broken down into packets, and it's not put together until it's received. So this has allowed us to create networks and create organizations that have no center, that grow from the edges, that have hierarchies that come and go, and that can't be controlled. So that became technically possible in the early days of the internet when it was called the ARPANET, but now it's becoming practical to scale to grow to a global scale. And I call these shape-shifting organizations because they have the ability to form and reform and um, in fast-changing environments, which is mostly what we're in right now, uh, shape-shifting works much better than hierarchy and command and control because that tends to be too rigid. And the unfortunate fact is that the criminals know how to use shape-shifting better than the rest of us. <laughs> so, so there's a real learning process afoot now to figure out how to create these organizations that are not just decentralized, but are actually distributed in a way that it's never been possible to be distributed before. That's fantastic. And it kind of gives you a mind-blowing view of who could be your next mentor. <laughs> Yeah, I'm afraid uh, we all have a lot to learn in this space. And I think the military has gone the furthest in figuring out how to work in this world. You know, they have concepts like commander's intent, which means you be very clear where you're going, but very flexible how you get there. And that's a a good uh, 
frame for distributed organizations. You want clarity will be rewarded in this world, but certainty will be punished, particularly the certainty of hierarchy. So in your research and your book, you have identified five leadership literacies or capabilities that you see as crucial. Can you just give us an overview first of these five? So the core is the ability to look 10 years ahead and work backwards, taking a kind of future back perspective. And the challenge is in this highly uncertain world, you can't just understand the present and inch your way out to the future. It's just too messy, too noisy. But if you go 10 years out, it's much more clear where things are going and then work your way backwards. So that's the core, future back, if you will. Then we have a literacy we call voluntary fear exposure. And it's using simulation, using gaming, using immersive learning to expose yourself, engage with the uncertainty and the fear, and basically to practice being a leader in a low-risk way. The third literacy is to lead these shape-shifting organizations, which I described before. And those organizations require a fourth literacy, which is the ability to be there without being there. You've got to be present, even if you're not physically there. And the good news is there's new tools for this with sensors everywhere. Many of them are connected. There's new ways of staying connected and engaging and leading at a distance. And you want to be close to the people you're leading, but not too close. <laughs> In other words, you don't, you don't want people to feel like you're always looking over their shoulder. But on the other hand, you want to be able to sense when kind of what the current mood of the organization is. And finally, to be a leader in this kind of world, uh, you have to be physically, mentally, and even spiritually fit, although not necessarily religiously, but you, we all need a sense of meaning or grounding in the face of all this uncertainty. So it used to be that you know leaders could get by with rather unhealthy lifestyles. That's going to be impossible in the future world because you're you're going to have to be physically and mentally fit in order to thrive in, in this kind of world. You can check out more hints and tips in the blog post covering this podcast episode of Exploring Leaders at the Degotian blog, which you find at degotian.com. At Degotian, we work actually both with executive leaders, but also with boards. We'd like to discuss these new interesting leadership literacies with you out of both the executive and the non-executive perspectives, because we think also they all need to adapt and change. So if we start with your yes. core area, which is looking back from, from the future, how do you see that leaders can best balance this thing around the short and long-term value creation? Well, it's a tension, particularly if you're a publicly traded company where there's a lot of quarterly return pressures. So clearly you have to do both. But what I would argue is in a, in a highly uncertain time, you know, we use the term VUCA world here, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. In a highly VUCA world, you need that long-term perspective. And that's necessary in order to be oriented, to be centered, to be focused on the current business. So most of your effort should be 
keeping the current business going, making your quarterly returns, uh, and doing incremental innovation. That certainly should be most of your business. But at least 5%, maybe 10, ought to be focused 10 years ahead to your industry, to your overall business structure. And the interesting thing about that is that it's actually easier to look 10 years ahead than it is one or two years ahead. So if you have that clarity of focus, it actually allows you to perform better in the short term as well. So it's a, it's a discipline of balancing. It's, it's not a problem you can solve. It's a dilemma you have to manage of keeping the current business performing well and yet continuing to have a clarity of direction that's focused 10, year, 10 or more years ahead, depending on your industry. Which is truly an exciting and interesting way that we would like our leaders and, and boards to consider, because right now many leaders and boards are all becoming a bit more short term. And you're saying yeah, yeah. you need to have the mixture. That's what you're saying too, too. The balance. Yeah, you need you need the mix, particularly at the board level, and and I'm concerned about that because boards are not as future oriented as they used to be in my experience because there's been so much pressure now for an appropriate pressure about fiduciary responsibility and ethics and compensation and the like. Those are all important issues, but the job of the board, the higher you go, the further out you should be looking. So I believe that boards have the responsibility to be the voice of the future in terms of future directions and kind of long-term views. We're going to come back to that, but that is actually also something you teach at Institute for the Future, how you can look at your surroundings and and trends and, and, and how you can make some assessment around that, right, with your foresight courses. Yes. Yeah, we do. So four times a year, we do public foresight studios, we call them, to teach people the methods of futurism. And it's interesting, we started doing this three years ago. So we've done 12 of them, and all 12 of them have been sold out. There's clearly a growing interest in the future. And, you know, design thinking was the kind of hot thing five years ago. Uh, We think futures thinking could be the next kind of hot way of thinking about innovation. And it doesn't doesn't take, it actually works together very well with design thinking. It doesn't replace it. But design thinking starts from insight and goes deeper through ethnography and interviewing to try to understand unstated and unmet user needs and wants. What foresight does is go further out and then work backwards. And I think the two go together, go together very well. And it's getting increasingly important now to have that long view. Very inspiring, I have to say. And let's move on to your your second literacy, this engagement in fear, which I think most leaders are trying to. I think one of the, the ways that a lot and a lot of the guidance around is around to controlling risk in the future. So how do you see that work in the future? How do you control risk? Well, you can't. You you really can't control this risk. You can minimize it and kind of reduce the probabilities of bad things happening, but you can't control. So so we're. Uh, I'm not sure you ever could, but certainly in this future you can't. And the challenge is how to how to manage risk and reduce risk and share risk, but not to avoid it. You you really can't avoid it. 
that's why things like immersive learning or uh, simulation or gaming, that's how you can practice in lower risk ways. But you can't you can't control and you can't avoid risk. Right. And in one of our research that we're doing with leaders and boards, one of the things that comes out almost all the time is that companies actually believe they're doing too little experimentation in the business. And maybe is it around that that you talk about this voluntarily engaging in fear with gaming? Yes. How do you see that? Can you share that with us? Well, it it connects to what we call here in Silicon Valley rapid prototyping. And what you want to do is do a lot of small experiments. And you can view those as simulations or as games because you're you're not doing it just to succeed as a business. You're doing it to learn. And failure is okay. That's why you do a lot of these at a small scale. So the, the rule of thumb here is learn how to fail early, fail often, and fail cheaply. And this is a, a very good way to, to do that. I, I did a book a few years back called The Reciprocity Advantage with Carl Rahn from Procter & Gamble. And, you know, Carl is an innovation guy who did a whole series of new products at Procter & Gamble in new industries. And what he said, particularly with large companies, is that they tend to do a small number of large experiments. And what you need to do in this world is a, a large number of small experiments. And you do these in, in simulated or prototypical environments, and you don't scale them until they're proven, until you have a, a much better sense. So that's another way to approach risk is to share it, uh, to share it with partners that allow you to do things you can't do alone. To get even more value out of the podcast series, Exploring Leaders, you can find everything from research reports to advice and courses at the Degotian Insight platform, which you can find at Degotian.com. Let's talk a bit about the shape-shifting organizations that you mentioned. You, you, you mentioned something that you call growing from the edges. Can you share with us what that means? Yeah. So what, what tends to happen is with these shape-shifting organizations is the boundaries are more porous. In other words, it's possible to pass through the boundaries in and out. So the growth actually happens from the edges rather than from the center, so in this form, you want to optimize the potential to innovate, and the potential to innovate lives at the edges. When A.G. Lafley became the CEO of Procter & Gamble, Procter & Gamble was a very traditional company, promote from within, most of the R&D and the new ideas came from the inside. And one of the things he said at his very first public meeting was that P&G can no longer offer lifelong employment but they can offer lifelong employability. And it seems to me that's what, that was a profound insight because what it means is that once you join Procter & Gamble, you're part of this extended family, this extended community. This You could think of it even as a diaspora, you know, kind of values-linked social network. And the borders are porous. So whether you're inside or outside, particularly at the edges, it's not always obvious. So that's, I think, the new model of shape-shifting organizations is these more porous and more shifting boundaries. And that that, in fact, is where the innovation happens, not at the center anymore. And, and this is also exciting out of another perspective, and that is that 
a lot of companies now work more internationally and there you would have a lot of cultural differences so how do you see that is that an extra challenge is that an opportunity and how can leaders facilitate that well it's both a challenge and an opportunity and 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 it's inevitable i think that kind of diversity um is is a good thing although it does have challenges so the the challenge is how do you engage with that diversity and make it into make it into a good thing and and i think there's now some companies who are figuring out how to do that and and in fact uh, that's pretty much how silicon valley works is it's uh, the loyalty in silicon valley is not so much to companies it's to social networks and people move from company to company but they're loyal to the networks with which they work and that's where the, where the innovation starts is is at the the edges and you know when i started my career diversity was all about social equity you know fairness and it it still is but now you can make a case that diversity is just as much about innovation and you can see data i cited in the book that data that suggests that the more diverse teams are the more innovative they are and that you know that makes a makes a big difference but that's not to say it's easy there's lots of tension built into this but it's mandatory now to figure out how to how to do that yeah very interesting and and totally something a lot of us need to learn to continue to facilitate the next literacy is uh, something that we are very intrigued by and that is be there when you're not there can you help us understand what does this mean and how should leaders embrace this? Well, you know, today's leaders, most most of today's leaders are very good in person. But when they're not there in person, they degrade. You know, they're just not used to communicating presence and leadership and strength at a distance. There is a, an advantage that young people coming uh, up into the work, so, workforce, and I talk in the book about those 21 or less in 2017 having the most potential. And as young people enter, they're much more familiar with communicating virtually than, than those of us over 21 are. Um, and all of us have to learn how to do that. And, and that's really the challenge, how to how to design a leadership model uh, that you can be actually better than if you were there in person. Uh, That's the challenge I lay out in the book. And I give a number of examples of how, of how you might, you might do that. We didn't, you know, we don't know yet exactly how to do that on a large scale, but the opportunities are getting so much better now than they were before. I mean, we're, we're going to have, if you look 10 years ahead, we're going to have, sensors everywhere. Uh, many of those sensors will be connected. Some of them will even be in our bodies. So we have the ability to stay connected to each other in ways we've never been able to do that before. And one of the things that comes to mind uh, where we also believe actually leaders need to progress is around social media. How do you see that play out in this literacy? Well, I think social media are a piece of it. In the book, I've got a kind of chart, of a vision of all the alternatives, and it's in a time and place model. So same time, same place is in person. Different times, different places is social media. But there's also same time, different place, same place, different time, anytime, any place. 
And if you're over 21, you're better at same time, same place. If you're under 21, you're better at everything else. <laughs> so so the, the, this is a cross-generational learning opportunity that we have to face up for. And, and uh, ideally, the human resources or part of a big company ought to be teaching this. But I know very few companies where it does. So the challenge is how do you... How do you express your leadership and communicate your leadership, even if you're not there physically? So what questions do you think boards can ask to help facilitate this literacy, to be there when you're not there? Well, I guess you could ask questions of location and distribution. You know, where, where do you place your leaders physically? And then ask questions of what's the media mix for how leaders communicate? And you can use the map that's in the book and kind of plot that and say, you know, what proportion of your communication is same time, same place? What proportion is different times, different places? And then for each of those options, what are the media that you use? And then how do you teach the skills in using those media? Yes, indeed. And, and that's a very good way and very clear and structured way for to help uh, both the leaders and the executives, non-executives. On the last lead, uh, literacy, which is also an intriguing one to create and sustain this positive energy, what do you think that the clarity has to do uh, with this? How can leaders be part of uh, sharing the clarity and hopeful strategies uh, together with this energy? Well, you know, you know, that's the, the essence of leadership is to be a source of clarity. And in order to have that clarity, you need to be physically and mentally and, and spiritually fit and grounded, particularly in the face of these rather frightening things that we're facing now as, as countries and as companies and as people. So the, you know, the, the source of clarity comes from the inside as well as from the outside. And we need to articulate that clarity, but it actually needs to be, be grounded and be based in our, in our bodies and how we, how we live. So the clarity has to be expressed in, in very positive energy. So I tell the story in the book about a, a CIO here in Silicon Valley, when I was presenting this uh, literacy to them in a, in a large group, he shared a, a phrase that he uses in his work. He says, you have to be careful of the chi suckers. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, chi is the Chinese concept of energy. And in many meetings you go in, there are people who kind of suck the energy out of a room. And a leader can't let that happen. So you have to engage with those negative forces. And, you know, in in many ways in big companies, the easiest way to look smart is to be negative. But in this kind of world, it's so important to have that clarity of purpose that pulls people together. And that's the challenge for leaders is how how to express that physically. So a leader needs to walk into a room and exude positive energy in a realistic way and then sustain that when he or she is not in the room. And that's a real challenge. And it's it's very difficult in, in these times. Mm. And, and you're right. The true way forward is for great leaders to move on and take even more responsibility. We also wanted to hear if you can 
give us some examples. Is there some companies or organizations that is moving into this way of, of picking up some of these literacies that we could keep our eye on? I haven't done a complete survey. As best I can tell, there's no single company that represents all of the literacies. But most large companies have at least some portion that represents one or more of the literacies. I'm finding that in in the military, for example, I'm not a military person by background, but I've learned over, over the period of the last 10 or 15 years that the traditional army, for example, is usually still very hierarchical, but what are called the special forces are often much more of what I think of as, as shape-shifting organizations. If you look in the healthcare industry, um, particularly in emergency rooms or in emergency response units, they're often more shape-shifting. If you look at aerospace, pilot training is often done in a very, a very impressive simulated world. You know, pilot training devices, these kind of simulated aircraft, those were originally video games. So there are portions of almost any big company that practice a portion of the literacies. I haven't found any companies that practice them all yet. It is a challenge, as you were saying, to put it into a, the context on where you're operating and you have the short and long-term goals you need to balance. So we kind of thought that it would be very interesting to hear what kind of personal goals do you believe that leaders need to take on or any recommendation you would like to give leaders to try to move into this exciting future You know, I think the recommendation is to be thoughtful about your own leadership style. And that's why I wrote the book, is to give people a kind of guide to looking out to the future and then asking what kind of leadership literacies, not just skills, but literacies, kind of practices, disciplines, ways of thinking, uh, what kinds of literacies will it take to thrive? So I'm hopeful that the book will be a kind of guide for people to use either by themselves or or in groups to to think these things through. But it is a great opportunity that we're facing, but it's also a really big challenge. And I think it's a time where where we have to think more explicitly about leadership than we than we have before. And I believe looking long, looking 10 years out is a way to get a much more clear sense of where things are going and where we need to be as leaders. Mm. And um, it's it's definitely also in leadership something you probably need to to use your uh, voluntarily engage in fear and experiment also in the leadership literacies to to learn how yes. to work with them which we think is is a fantastic thing and we can warmly recommend the book it's really inspiring. And it really gives you a lot of thought on on how to move forward. Finally, Bob, we we always ask our uh, guests a bit of an odd question, but uh, we think it's so great. So we continue to ask that. And it's, if you were a furniture, what would you be? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, is an ejection seat. Uh, so like a, a very comfortable chair that still allows you to pop up at a moment's notice. So that combination of relaxing and responding. Uh, and if, if 
furniture could help you do that where you it kind of brings you in and relaxes you but then pops you out where you need that energy uh, that would be the ideal furniture for me I think that is such a wonderful answer and we want to thank you so much for extending your time and discussing these really important questions with us Thank you so much for this interview and we look forward to sharing your concepts and recommending your books and um, meeting you next time we're in Silicon Valley. Very good. I, I look forward to that too. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Exploring Leaders, a podcast produced by Digotion with the ambition to inspire insightful leadership in the digital age. If you found this episode interesting, join the momentum to amplify the voices of trailblazing leaders by sharing it with others for inspiration. For any questions or recommendations on other inspiring leaders you'd like to listen to, contact us via our website, degotion.com, or via social media as LinkedIn or Twitter.